0: The Lean Braves reporting for duty, your source for fitness and food education with a noble purpose. Fasten your seatbelts and hold on to your carrots. You're listening to the Lean Braves radio show at theleanbraise.com. We are Avengers of Health. Our show title today, The Hands and Brain of Education. Okay, welcome to Raise. I'm Ron Jones with Angelique Chaveri, and she's in uh, Missouri. She's a special education teacher, and we've been having a lot of chit-chat back and forth over the years about children and education, whether it's uh, private education, uh, charter school education, public school education, homeschool education. The title of our show today is The Hands and Brain of Education. We're going to talk a lot about the hands and how they relate to the brain and learning. So, Angelique, I'm so happy to have you on with me today.
1: Thank you so much, Ron. I am so excited. Um, this is such a huge topic that most people have, don't realize, don't even know what to look for, and I'm so excited to get to be here and talk with you about this today.
0: Oh, well, thank you, and I've I've actually learned a lot from you over the years, as you've seen what I'm working on, and you're one of the people that will write me um, kind of off. Off record, and say, hey, you know, have you looked at this? Or you know, this also relates to that. And so, I'm I'm just amazed with your your experience, and you know, you've been around education a long time. I wanted to. I think what first kind of got us together talking was um, when I started doing post on the hands and the emphasis yeah. on on young children. So we're talking about uh, TK kindergarten using their hands in the classroom. Not just as a way to hold their pencil better, but as a way to actually develop their brain and, and therefore their ability to learn all subjects. So as a special education teacher, can you, can you talk about that, whether it's historical or, or from a neurology standpoint, and let, let people know and help them understand how important it is for us to have this discussion on the importance of hand training for the brain?
1: Yes, absolutely, and I will. I'll try to be concise because I could probably give a three-hour seminar. Oh yeah, it's, um, it's deep. <laughs> so, so one of my trainings that it, things that I've trained in is um, reflex integration. Right. And I specifically trained in the Russian school of reflex integration. The the Russians originally identified reflexes and spent a long time um, studying their effects. And how they're related to um, not just protection, but learning and mental health, emotional health. So one of the things they found, they identified a reflex called Babkin Palamento, and it's the connection between the hands and the mouth. Mm -hmm. And we have uh, lots of kiddos that struggle with writing. Oh yeah. Usually what our teachers will first identify is they're not holding the pencil correctly or their handwriting is awful. Right. And there could be there's different things involved there. I can look at a handwriting sample and tell you from the handwriting sample if it's a visual issue, if it's a fine motor issue, or if there's something else going on maybe as deep as the reflexes. Hmm. And to give a little bit of background, uh, reflexes, we're all kind of familiar with going to the doctor and they they don't do it much anymore, but everybody's familiar with the little triangle shapes mallet that they would
2: right, tap right. under the knee, yeah.
1: And you're, or if you fall, you throw your hands out or you touch something hot and you pull your hand back really quickly and you're not even really thinking about it because the response is coming from the brainstem. Right. Well, there's a lot of reflexes in the body, and they serve two purposes. One, protection. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're all familiar with.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the other purpose is to actually bring on a cascade of neurological development. And here in the West, we don't really let kids develop their reflexes. Um, you know, we're not letting them go out and take risks. We're not letting them um, jump from high things. And when they're little, when they're babies, we don't let them put things in their mouth.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that is the bad compound memento reflex. They, that's how they learn about things is by putting things in their mouth. And mm-hmm. there's actually receptors in the roof of the mouth um, that they learn about different textures and shapes and things like that, and then as they uh, get a little older and they're sitting up, they start bringing food to their mouth and feeding themselves, and very often, because we try to be very clean here in the West, we're feeding them with a spoon or a, a fork, whether they're feeding the little baby food or we get up into um, little small chunks of food or whatever,
2: Right. but that
1: is inhibiting them from developing their bad compartmental reflex, So. Um, so what, so you're you saying, know,
0: the, what you're saying then is that they're, they're actually—they should be able to learn through their mouth? Is that that is essentially—wow, yeah. this is fascinating, because a lot of this yeah. I haven't heard before.
1: I know. it is. It is I was reading through my notes uh, before we talked, and it just got all fired up again. I'm a big nerd about this stuff, but it's, it's, I see it so often. I get so many calls that the, the main complaint is handwriting. Mm-hmm. And then the deeper we get into it, there's a lot more going on because um, everything is so interconnected. It's in our nervous system, there's built-in multiple fail states. If there's a problem here, we'll reroute and deal with it over here. Yeah. But the more reroutes you have, the less efficient the nervous system in the brain are
0: able to function now. Is this is this the same as retained infant reflexes? Is this what you're talking yes. about? Okay, so because yes. I'm familiar with Brain Gym and and uh, Kathy Brown is a great friend of mine, and she's she's doing some work in this area now with the Brain Gym people mm-hmm. and educational kinesiologists. And so uh, it's it's on my radar screen, but I'm definitely <laughs> this is like really new stuff for me. And she's been helping me understand about. You know, a lot of postural things are are related to these reflexes. You know, as as an ergonomics, biomechanics-trained person, I just have really noticed the last few years the horrendous pencil postures that people have for handwriting. It's just there's no way uh, from a comfort or efficiency standpoint to hold a writing utensil like people, or especially younger people now I'm talking about, uh, efficiently and do any kind of work over a long period of time. I just see all kinds of, you know, ergonomic pain issues coming out of that. Now, I don't think we teach penmanship and and the the, right. the hand posture. I, I I in my way of thinking, it's just because we're not teaching a lot of things about movement and handwriting may be one of them. But you're saying there's more to it than just here's how yeah, to hold the pencil. It goes back.
1: It starts even earlier, and there's there's much more far-reaching implications. Mm-hmm. So. If a kiddo is having trouble uh, with their bad compound reflex, and usually if a family comes to me and, and they say the handwriting is a real issue, or maybe they've, the child is a little older, maybe it's a, a middle school or early high school girl, and they've kind of they've pulled it out and they've gotten their handwriting under control, but they still hate writing and it's incredibly stressful for them. Right. Usually this and maybe one or two other reflexes are going to be, um, I'm going to find through the assessment that they haven't integrated. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, um, so in your hand uh, warm-ups and exercises that you do in your videos that you right. that we're loving, our family is loving that you've got on YouTube now. Oh, thank you. It really reminded me of one of the exercises that I do with kids for this reflex.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's, it's an exercise, but it's also a way that I identify if this is going on. It's a diagnostic. So I have them... Um, doing different things with their fingers and extending you know one finger and then another and and then uh, they put their um, their thumb and their first finger together and move them back and forth but all of the time and they usually will tell me this is hard maybe their eyes will even in water or their face will flush right but I'm looking at their mouth because it's a neurological connection between their hand and their mouth I'm watching for a tongue thrust or even their lips They'll press their lips together, or maybe their lips will come in and out. I watch parents write checks um, or fill out paperwork, and I see their mouths moving. And I'll say, this is r- Complemento has not integrated.
0: This is fascinating. You know, an,
1: wow. Oh, I know. It's it's amazing. So there's an old saying. Um, I'm from Oklahoma originally, and all my people are, are from the South. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard this, but you got to hold your mouth right. you got to <laughs> hold it just right, To to get a screw on or something small, what you're trying to do with your hands and it's difficult and it's got to be just right. And they've always said you got to hold your mouth right. That's well, really
0: interesting. I've never heard of they that didn't,
1: before. Yeah, they didn't know where they where that was coming from. They just intuitively picked up on this connection. You know, and it's always kind of a joke that you can't get something screwed in or you know something small. Well, you got to hold your mouth right.
0: Well, so, I, I have worked in oral posture. And oral health with the kids in terms of nasal breathing versus mouth breathing, because there's a whole history of that and how, you know, the Native Americans I read used to make fun of the Westerners because they they breathed with their, they called them black mouths or something like that because they breathe with their mouths open. And as I learned about this, the oral fascial health part of it and how... That, and along with soft foods, our jaws aren't developing properly, which causes this whole thing with braces now, which ends up interfering with the breathing. There's a there's a book written on this called Jaws by an orthodontist. It's it's fascinating, because oh when you go back and look at tribal populations, they had very good um, teeth alignment and everything. Anyway, so I, st- I read this a couple of years ago, and I started looking around, and it's like, man, there's a lot of kids. They have no clue of how to breathe through their nose. And so... You know, I just—I have been working with the elementary kids on that, just the nasal breathing part. Unless you're eating or talking, your mouth should be shut. Of course, this helps them with noise. But, <laughs> 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 but there's—but I'm—I'm learning with you today. There's a lot more to this. I'm gonna have to start yeah. looking at mouth posture now, man. This is
1: like—oh, it's amazing. Well, this, there's, wait there's more. <laughs> um, so <laughs> the. Um, this bad contaminamental reflex is also related to three d vision mm. so um, if it doesn't get all the exercise that it needs and integrate properly, then we start seeing vision difficulties mm. and where this really gets scary is I've had kids who were sixteen and couldn't pass their driver's test really come in, yeah, and <laughs> And it, you know, even had difficulty, and it goes much further than just this reflex. But they couldn't tell if they were on the right side of the road or the left side of the road, and that goes back to other reflexes where our body learns to differentiate between left and right. But there's there's a ton there. So this is also involved with um, with the kiddos that chew on their pencils mm-hmm. and their uh, fingernails. Um, it it's always tense in the jaw, like TMJ. Type right. stuff. These terrible headaches, um, even so far as stuttering, speech diffi- difficulties, and addictions, oral addictions. So, uh, cigarette smoking, soda addictions. I had a mom one time so I was working on her daughter, and she was one of the moms who's writing this check, and I realized her mouth is moving all over the place, and I pointed it out to her, and we started talking about it, and she this this light bulb went on for her, and she was like, "Oh my goodness, that's my soda." I have to have, it was the bubble, the carbonation in her mouth that helped her calm down. And um, it was that activating those sensors in the mouth, that bad mental, um reflex. So kids that suck, suck their, um, their thumb too long, that's an initial sign of it.
2: Hmm. And then
1: it just, it goes on, you know, you, you get them to stop sucking their thumb and they just translate that to something
0: else. So, should we be allowing them to suck their thumb then? Are we getting in the way of, of them putting their thumbs in their mouth and other, obviously other things? But what about just the thumb part?
1: Well, that's, I mean, depending on their age, you know, there's all kinds of issues that it can cause with the bite and even just social issues. Right. But that's when it's probably important to get an OT involved um, and be looking at these reflexes because they're, they're just going to accommodate with something else.
0: How many special education teachers are into this? Because I've never, oh, heard, I, I, I've never heard any. <laughs> I, I've been around a lot of special ed teachers. I've never heard any of them talk about the intelligence um, of the mouth. You know,
1: I know that's. I don't know. I know that the organization I trained with, Maskatova, mm-hmm. uh, it's called Maskatova Neurosensory Motor Reflex Integration, and Doctor M. Uh, left Russia and went to Poland after the Iron Curtain fell, and then she made her way to the United States, and her headquarters is actually in Florida now. Okay. And I do know after the uh, probably the last three years, they have started um, offering training specifically for educators. So okay. I don't know what kind of response they're getting, um, but when I started training in this, it was kind of a, you're a teacher? <laughs> so,
0: okay, well... Um, and I'll say the Brain Gym people are onto this type of thing, but outside of the, my exposure to Brain Gym and those educational kinesiologists, like in the the teachers that I deal with face to face at the school, I have not heard them talk at this level. Well, this is fascinating. I'm just like I can't wait to get out in public, just start kind of watching the oral posture of people now, because yes. I've been oh, lo- I've been looking if are their mouths open or closed, and and so often I see people not breathing, you know, through their nose. Yeah.
1: Well, and, if, and if, they're, if this is difficult for them, so one of the things to know too, especially for any any parents or teachers that are listening, mm-hmm. if a kiddo, if they're writing and you see something going on with their mouth, whether they're clenching their jaw, they're sticking their tongue out or pursing their lips, they've only got about two minutes in them that they can write. And after that, they become exhausted and they cross the line into adrenal fatigue. So... We have lots of kiddos that struggle with writing, that we're forcing them to write more and more and more, trying to push them through that. Well, and we need to back
0: up. What's the... Um, because I know just from my little bit of exposure to this, there are neurological resets for these reflexes. So what, what do you do when you have someone like this? What, what steps do you take?
1: Well, there's particular exercises that we do, and I usually teach the parent to do it using... Um, there's motions that they go through with their fingers, but it's also stretching and stimulating the nerves in the hands. Okay. And because it's so interrelated with other reflexes, it's, it's at this point it's really kind of important to get a trained person involved.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I started working on the hands. Well, I understand the neurological relationship of the hands and feet to the brain. They're just loaded yeah. with nerve endings. And so as I started teaching elementary children, especially— the five-year-olds, I, I wanted to really focus on feet and hands as a way to develop the brain and also just the, the quality, the fine motor control part. Of course, they're limited at five, but you can still work with them to some degree. And it was really interesting doing uh, the finger exercises with them because I've never seen them so concentrated in any other activity. But when we were doing those little fingertip touches— they were just mesmerized by their fingers. I thought, I, I I wish I could have legally gotten a video of that and shared it because yeah. it was just priceless. You know, Did they get
1: tired? Did you see, like, a lot of times, kiddos, because it takes so much, so much focus, they'll kind of be fatigued okay. afterwards. And maybe you weren't doing it long enough to cause fatigue. Yeah. But I, that's something else we look
0: for. The volume, uh, just from an attention standpoint, I try to keep the volume pretty light. So I would. I would go through, um, and we'd usually go through three times tapping all four digits with the thumb. And then I would okay. do something, I would do like a, a five count where we start really slow and then we go a little bit faster. And, I you know, I put a little bit of a challenge out there, but basically it was my main focus with the finger exercises was the soft touch. And it, it was the gentle touch and more of the art of movement. But I, I'll tell you this, you, you'll understand this. I had a fifth grade boy cause I would do it with my older kids sometimes too, but more so with my kindergartners. And so one day I thought oh, I'll do the finger sizes and finger exercises. And I looked out there, he's looking at me, he's shaking his head left and right. No. Oh. And he can't touch his fingers with, oh, with, heart. yeah. And I, you know, I didn't have the education that you do. I was like, okay, well just slow down. You're okay. You know? Uh, but now I realize, um, that there's something deeper going on. And it was very right. frustrating for him. I could tell he was very bothered by it. And I'm, I'm so thinking, like, see, how can you not be able to do that? You're a fifth grade. Right. You know?
1: So when we see kiddos that are struggling with something like that, we do, we try to back off, lighten the load a little bit, but we um, make it more simple. You think about the things we'd give a preschooler to practice their hands, um, whether it's the twisty things or putting pegs and stuff. And yeah. that can be tricky to have an older kid do that kind of stuff. But, so in schools, we accommodate by having someone scribe for them. But if we want to really—and part of the reason I left the schools is because we were accommodating everything. and We weren't actually doing anything to fix the problem.
0: Uh, so the, the hardship of getting through it with the proper adaptations is critically important. Um, yeah. Yeah, instead of always enabling them and taking the risk away as you started off the show with. Um,
1: right, but man, it's, it is tricky because there's all these requirements and these things that you have to get
0: through right. in the
1: curriculum, and being able to take that, that load off um, so that they can have the time to focus on dealing with this issue hmm. is, is real tricky. And so that's why I, most of the time I'm just seeing parents that are bringing me kiddos after school or the homeschool population, I have a huge homeschool population. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or even private school, but it, they can't get to it or they have difficulty getting to it um, during the school day or even knowing what to do.
0: So, because if, 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 I'm having more and more parents listen to, to the types of things that I'm talking about, so we should not be as protective then um, with our younger children um, regarding um, the mouth education. <laughs> so. Like, if you want to suck in your toes, go ahead. You know, there's As long probably as it's not going to
1: hurt them. Right. Right. Give them, give them things with different textures and different shapes and something that's, you know, it's not poison and it's not sharp or they're not going to swallow it. Um, but don't be quite so afraid. And especially when they're able to start bringing their hands to their mouths, mm-hmm. um, feed themselves. Hmm. And, and little ones about you know, just before they're one and they're starting to try to walk and they're pulling up on stuff, very often we will stick a finger out and let them grasp our finger yeah. and walk with them. Don't do it. Don't, don't, don't do it because that's a fear response. That's grasped in the hand, and it's, when we fall, we grab something.
2: Right, right. And so
1: what, when kiddos are grabbing onto a finger to help them walk, that's actually spiking their adrenaline and causing walking to be fearful.
0: That's interesting. You know, I'm, I'm big on letting kids earn the right to walk because so often yeah. in our culture, we, we prop them up with a walker and they can walk around in this spring-loaded contraption or we, we put them in bouncers and then they develop this yeah. hip, his, you know, hip issues, you know. Um, and I've realized over the years of all my education, like, we just need to leave them alone, and let them figure it out, you know, without yeah. rushing yeah. them to walk, let them crawl around, let them you know, topple over a few times. That's they're developing their vestibular system for balance, too, their inner ears. And, you know, there, there's a whole Absolutely. process to this. And I think that the, the more we try to get in the way, the worse it gets, you know. Absolutely. One of the things so I—go ahead.
1: Go ahead. <laughs> the, well, I was going to say, for the, the kiddos that are, are in this and they need to be riding and it's really stressful, what you can do is, if possible, get them on their belly. Because it takes so much. To be able to coordinate sitting up in a chair. Right. Um, if it's possible for them to lay on their stomach, uh, to do the writing that has to be done, great. Um, you know, there's certainly accommodations like voice to text, but um, adding balance, like the balance cushions, we love those. Mm-hmm. Even some older boys have really liked standing on a balance board and holding a clipboard. To
2: Interesting. Do writing. Because well, talk... when
1: you stimulate the cerebellum, um, it increases focus and attention.
0: Interesting. Let's talk about um, uh, postures when working, because this is one of my areas of research. I don't know how much you've looked into that side of what I've done with school furniture.
1: Oh, yes. But... That was actually what made the fireworks go off for me, As I had seen a video you put out about posture and sitting at the desk and working, and I was, oh, that is it? Yes!
0: Have you read uh, Dwight Harmon's study from 1949? No. I'll I'll send it to you. This was a guy who studied, uh, he was in Texas. He studied 160,000 children over nine years with 14 agencies involved. So this is a massive, can you imagine like doing a study like that today? I mean, I don't even know if we could pull it off. But anyway, a massive study looking at basically classroom ergonomics, and it was intense. I mean, I've read some really intense neuroscience and biomechanics and exercise physiology, um, you know, journal articles and things of that nature, but this is probably the most intense report that I've ever read in my life. And so they were highly advanced, but they they looked at not only desktop angles, which we know about 22 degrees is the optimal reading and writing angle. And there's a whole thing of this, parents. If you're listening, you haven't heard of this before. I mean, I we could do a whole another uh, a show just on how you sit at a desk and why it's important to have a slope top. But when yeah. you have a flat top, it causes the children to basically rotate the paper and paper and kind of hike up the shoulder on the writing side, and they can mm-hmm. develop like kind of a wrapped, warped uh, posture, and they'll actually carry that through in walking when they get up from the desk. And anyway, so they looked at desktop angles. They looked at types of desks that were adjustable. They looked at uh, windows and where the windows were placed and how natural sunlight came through the windows and what type of glass was used and what kind of paint was used. Was it flat, matte, satin? What color was the paint? What, what kind of ceiling tiles were there? What kind of indoor lighting was there? Uh, what type of light bulbs were used? I mean, this thing was—it was intense— And we're basically not using any of it. And what they did is they they related the ergonomics, the facility health side of the classroom, directly back to health issues in the child. And this got into dental hygiene. It got into visual health. It got into learning. I mean, it was was absolutely stunning. And now you take that... And you look at what we're doing today, and as one of my mentors highlighted years ago to me, he goes, You know, your child moves, uh, your, your child starts to move worse the first day they go to school. I'm like, Well, what do you mean by that? Because they have PE. And I was, he goes, No, it's how they sit the children at school. Once they put them in a flat desk and they ask them to sit or mandate they sit for hours a day without a proper ergonomic setup the children start deforming their bodies. And it's very difficult to learn if you're in pain. Well, you can tell if, if the child's legs are hanging off the chair and they're not even touching the floor because the chair height doesn't suit their leg length. They're not at a proper desktop angle. It's painful to read and write. You know, so I think this gets into some of your areas as well. I'll, hop, I'll hook this, uh, yes. I'll hook that link up for that paper to the show, along with a couple other links that you can send me about uh, education backgrounds for you. Well, what do you think of that on your background?
1: That is amazing, and I know when I was in uh, graduate school, there was some research going on, but it was very. Specific to uh, colors on the walls,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and now where now the research is more, you know, are we are we overdoing our classrooms? Are they are they too fussy and it's distracting? Yes, we need to kind of tear some things down, but there's it is so interrelated. There's so much going on. It's such a massive amount of sensory information that kids take in, all of us take in, um, and having to if we get overwhelmed, if these kiddos are getting overwhelmed in the classroom and they're not set up ideally, especially where posture is concerned, then mm-hmm. we can't expect um, ideal performance. And there's you know, we've spent so much money trying to teach our teachers to teach better, and there's just a lot more to it. This is fascinating. Is, this isn't it, that
0: isn't it fascinating that just just the simple fact that a lot of our children now are in a classroom that's a portable trailer that might not even have more than one window or any windows in it. That alone can be severely affecting their learning ability. And then what type of air are they getting? Is it always recirculated air or is it fresh air? Um, yeah, this report is really interesting. I mean, it was very, very intense, but I got a lot out of it, even though there was a lot I, I couldn't comprehend. You'll get more out of it than me because of your background, but it's worth looking at, and people, people will refer to the report on the visual side of health now. Uh, optometry still talks a lot about that uh, report. If you kind of dig into it and you Google it, you'll see optometrists discussing it, behavioral optometrists, but you won't see education people discussing it, unless and, and maybe they're listening to this show, <laughs> because it's just. It, but it was one of the things that got uh, given to me by one of my mentors in education a long time ago, and it's it's like man, this we have so many opportunities, and and as as with the kids come out of a lockdown situation, and then they're going back into a school that. Um, doesn't have the right kind of lighting and windows and, and there's so, there's it's very complicated, you know. There's, yeah. a, there's definitely a lot of room for improvement. So, uh, but the, the
1: good news is there there is hope. There is so much that we can do to improve the situation. It's not um, like I was talking about in graduate school, the research that was going on, it seemed very hopeless at the time because we didn't know, we knew there were these issues, but we didn't know what was causing them or how to fix them. But we really do. We just need to, to connect People, the right people with this information.
0: Yeah, and there's a couple links that I'll add too on the equipment side of this related to what we just discussed because there was an airline pilot who had a daughter that had a reading issue. And he got into Harmon's research years ago and he started manufacturing these, um, these. they're called slant boards and they're little plexiglass yes. boards that are colored and I don't know if you're aware of those. but
1: Yes, we have them.
0: Yeah, you can slip them they're into your fantastic. backpack. It's, it's got the 22, 23 degree angle you can read and write in them, and, and so those are a nice add-on that you can take into the classroom, put up on your flat-top desk, and kind of correct that. And then also the disco sit pads, they look like an exercise pad, but you basically sit them on the chair, and it allows your legs to kind of waterfall off the edge. And I know the ADHD kids sometimes do much better when they're on a like a stability ball or a, a squishy pad because they can move a little bit, but from a postural aspect, if you're sitting with your your legs and torso in what's close to a ninety degree angle, which is how most people sit today, it actually compresses your organs, it flattens out your lumbar curve. It's not good for your your ability to bear weight with gravity. And they they were writing about this in the mid eighteen hundreds. And and so the ideal sitting posture, parents, is about sixty degrees, which is if you look at an equestrian that knows how to ride properly, that's the angle that they use on top of the horse. So it, it, I would even if you don't like horses, Google some people riding horses and just watch yeah. how they sit because you can learn a lot about posture based on equestrian uh, form. And I've talked to a lot of people that are equestrians and, and they're, they basically move the horse with subtleties in their posture. You know, a really good horse is cued to to move on just little tiny postural center changes. It's not a big pulling of the rein thing, you know. Uh, So there's a lot of value in in learning how to sit um, in terms of Are you familiar
1: with the big um, increase we've seen in hippotherapy with, with horses? Kids with learning issues, autism spectrum, Down syndrome, Getting occupational therapy on
0: horses. Oh, the children going to the the horse therapy. Yes. Yes there there's a um, there's a program out here called the Gentle Barn. They have a lot of animals, and the kids can go out and do things like that and have a whole sensory experience with them. But yes, I have I have been uh, exposed to some of that.
1: It's the same. They they are working on correcting the rhythms of the body, correcting posture, hmm. and they have a lot of research behind it. It's really
0: fascinating. So to ride a horse and not fall off, you have to have alignment and, mm-hmm. and a, a sense of postural awareness. Is, is that how it's working then?
1: Yes, and it has to do... There's, I know there's something about the belly button going in a figure eight when you're riding um, the horse, and what that does... Um, in the brain.
2: Really? But I really
1: don't know a lot, but it's, yeah, it, it has a lot to do, so if, like if we were walking correctly, so mm-hmm. you, know, you spend a lot of time teaching people how to walk. Right. It's just so important, um, and it, this all kind of, there's all these changes that happened in our education system around the same time, and, and in that time frame, we got away from riding horses,
2: mm-hmm.
1: so there was a lot of cultures, I've spoken on this a lot, but there's um, a lot of cultures, more traditional cultures, that they had things in their culture, whether it was dances or um, some kind of celebration or just things that they did on a regular basis that reorganized their nervous system,
2: hmm. whether
1: it was the Native Americans um, at powwow spinning and going in circles. They were reorganizing their vestibular system and their nervous system every time they did that. And um, it, you see it in, in various different cultures. Right, and we've gotten away from all that. But riding horses, you know, in the West, we did a lot of that, and um, we didn't realize the the positive impact it was having on our nervous system and on learning.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. So the the figure eight really got on my radar there because I work so much in in cross lateral patterns, and this comes out yes. of. You know, the brain gym people are always talking about figure eights and cross-lateral, moving across the midline. And in in movement, what I'm chasing is circular figure eight and spiral movements. That's really where the action is. If you look at the traditional fitness approach, it's very linear. It's straight push-pull, you know, left-right. But, you know, if you go back in the history of movement, great movement, the art of movement, is going to be circular spiral figure eight, whether you're looking at martial arts high level martial arts skills it's not just a straight punch it's always got you know uh, a cross lateral you know circular type pattern to it most often so that's yeah, interesting that's- that the horse the belly button would make a figure eight in it. but I wonder, yeah. I wonder in the walking uh, gait what is happening to that center of our body and what kind of motion the navel would make I'm very fascinated by this now
1: there's probably some research out there. Yeah. I know when I went through uh, the reflex training, they talked about really because the West has had so much impact around the world that for, to find a people group that um, their reflexes are all functioning the way they were designed to, you really have to kind of go to the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. But um, if you look at videos of even rural China of people walking, they walk differently than we do. And they, you can tell by the way they're walking that their reflexes are more functional than ours are. Their gait is different.
0: Well, I know we don't walk well, that's for sure. I mean, I've heard and read over the years that uh, Europeans can spot Americans across the parking lot just on our poor quality gait. <laughs> you know, and which is why we are <laughs> spend so much time on these videos. That walking video I did is, I think, one of the longest video I've ever done on YouTube. is like 16 minutes, which for me is a long video. It took me about ten hours to do that by the time it was said and done. But it it was just scratching the surface of how to walk well. But that is so off the radar with people. I've actually been made fun of and criticized for teaching oh. people how to walk, but I'm telling you, it's very important,
1: you know. Everything everything goes back to that. You know, when kiddos go from crawling to walking, there's a whole nother cascade of neurological development that happens in the brain. Connecting the front of the brain to the brainstem. Mm-hmm. And if the reflexes involved in walking aren't allowed to develop correctly, you're going to expect learning problems.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a real disconnect. I mean, this is what I've observed the last couple of years working with TK through sixth grade. I mean, there's a large percentage of the student population neurologically disconnected they're they're not they're not connecting to their feet, their arms aren't connected in gait, they're just kinda weeble wobbling but not falling down, although they're all oftentimes falling down as well. And now I'm thinking back to Carlo Hannaford who is a neuroscience a PhD who does work with Brain Gym. And I saw her do a presentation at University of Laverne one time and uh for graduate students and I was invited one of my friends is a professor down there and and in her presentation, she started spinning around, and she must have spun around like five minutes straight. And then when she stopped, she was perfectly still. I mean, I was getting dizzy just watching her, you know. And and she's years older than I am. I'm like, I couldn't do that for like thirty seconds without probably vomiting, you know. But she must have been working on that that recalibration that you were talking about, that resetting of the. Uh, you know, and you think about whether it's capoeira and martial arts or, or Native American yeah. ceremonies, they did a lot of spinning-type movements. You know, this yeah. is really interesting.
1: It was there. The knowledge was there intuitively, and we got away from it. But the good news is we can bring it back.
0: Well, you know, and this kind of brings us into classical um, education in general, and I'm known for classical PE methods, um, and I guess in a bumper sticker way of explaining that to people, there are certain things we did in physical education that worked really well. And I can yeah. tell by looking, looking at things over the decades and even going back to ancient Greece, there's just certain things that work well that should not be removed from the curriculum. We don't always have to try to reinvent the wheel. And as I look at what PE has become, it, it's like we're not even close to the quality that we used to have even in the 1960s. And so one of the things that came out of all this research was a real emphasis on using the hand skills in order to develop the brain and the child's ability to learn all subjects. And there was this area of PE or related to PE called manual arts, and it was, it was hand skill activities like wood shop would be a manual art, pottery, sewing. Uh, metal shop, auto shop. You know, I've talked to people that are car people and like, these kids can't put a a bolt or a nut yes. on a bolt. They can't put a washer on a screw. They're, they're, they don't have the finger skills, right? So um, growing up in the 60s and 70s and doing Cub Scouts, learning how to use a knife and whittle things for projects. And now we're afraid for the child to hold a knife. You know? Yeah. But so there's just a lot of really simple things like that that need to go back into the curriculum, at least on the physical side. Uh, you know, probably all subjects, there's things that would be similar. But on the physical side, I, I, I really worked in the quality movement through the hands and the feet, because I knew from history and also the neuroscience work that I've done that's critically important. Um, so yes, there's some things we can do today that, I mean, they don't require a lot of funds. I mean, right? it's, it's not a money thing. It really right. isn't. I mean, if you look at the equipment that I use in PE or for fitness training, it's pennies on the dollar compared to high tech. It's very analog and we don't right. really need a lot of capital invested into this. We need a different philosophy, you know, and a, a little bit of a, A rearview mirror and history and the wisdom that can help us move forward properly.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, in classical education, one of our in the organization we educate with, um, one of our mottos is is "stick in the sand."
2: Is what you have? Is what stick
1: in the sand? Stick in the sand. If you have a stick Mm -hmm. and some sand, you can you can educate your children.
0: Hmm. Keep it simple. Yes. Hmm. Well, we've talked about some pretty intense things today, but also some very simple solutions. You know, we can—I mean, even if I don't have a disco sit pad, which costs about 25 bucks, I can change how I sit in a poorly designed chair. I can sit myself up and kind of scoot up to the edge and and basically make sure my knees are lower than my hips, and I can put a little more lumbar curve into my spine. And if you're trying to grasp this when you listen to the show— Go, go to a wall, hold on to the wall with one hand if you're worried about balancing, and raise one knee up and put uh, the other hand that's not on the wall on your low back. And feel the low cur- curve in your back when both feet are on the ground. And as you raise your knee higher, you'll feel the curve flatten in your low back. And when you get up to about 80 or 90 degrees, your low back is typically pretty flat. And so we want to maintain the natural curve in the spine. And and an equestrian, they have a natural curve in the spine at about 60 degree hip angle. So there are simple things. Once you know the education and you know what's behind it, it, it's a simple change. You know, it doesn't require any money. Or very little money to make those changes, but I will put uh, some links up for the equipment and also the Harman study uh, when we post the show. And then if you could send me a couple of those links that you think are important for people to explore, that would be awesome. Absolutely. I'd love to. Do you have anything else to add as we close here?
1: I don't think so. This okay. is I'm sure this is probably a little overwhelming for some people, but just don't give up. There's so much more out there. Please keep digging.
0: Yeah, I think first people need to ask questions. You know, I don't—one I, I've one of my mentors says, I like you because you ask good questions. And I, a lot of times I don't have the answers. But I know enough to start asking questions. And so the questions, as a parent of three children, two of which are still in grade school, I would ask you to start asking questions about what does your child's classroom look like? You know, where are the windows? Do they have any natural light at all? You know, what, what's the what's the death situation? Um, I can almost guarantee you they're flat, right? But there's a whole—one of the videos we did a long time ago with Doug Orchard, the filmmaker, um, it was on the history of posture in schools. I'll put that video link up on this podcast show because people need to watch that. It's only a few minutes long, but we actually went into a historical museum school up by Sacramento, and— um, we interviewed the the docent there um, about the history of school desk. It was fascinating, you know. There, there's just yeah. it's and and we had some vintage uh, footage from the 1920s about posture in schools and and how they, you know, taught kids foot fitness and made footprints, at, you know, with an ink pad, and then they compared the the shape of their feet pre and post after the training, and they wow. developed the the whole the, the the biomechanics of their feet and the neurology of their feet completely change over the course of the school year because they emphasize uh, the, the posture of the feet and training the feet i mean there's there's just so much that we used to do and so there's a lot of opportunities um to put that on your radar and start asking questions and that's a start right we want to encourage yeah. people to this is our this is our beginning and keep paying attention and keep watching and we'll keep working on it Thanks so much. This has been uh, just a fascinating show for me, and it's opened up a lot of doors.
1: Oh, you're so welcome, and thank you for all you're doing. I mean, it's just, the video you just referenced was the first one I saw for you that made the
2: ah. the
1: fireworks go off in my head, and I've been pushing your work out to anybody that will listen, because you get it. You've You've got the dots connected, and it's hopeful, and it's exciting, and it's, something parents can take and actually do
0: something with. Well, that's great. I know um, a lot of the homeschool parents are, are picking up on it, and they're they're looking for a more classical approach, so they, they seem to be liking that. And I'll say this in the way out of the show. I've had uh, a handful of uh, younger men in the last couple weeks contact me that are in undergraduate, and they're starting to understand, like, there, there's something else going on that we're not being taught in school, and they've, they've reached out for my help in some classical P.E. type things to to write their thesis on or whatever. So I think I think the wheels are turning and, and people are looking to make changes. And we, we're we in a, a period of history here in June 2020 where we do need to make some changes. There's a lot of opportunities. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. All right. I'll be talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, Angelique. Okay. Thanks, Rob. You've been listening to the Lean Braves Radio Show at theleanbraves.com. Until next time, keep moving for noble purpose, no excuses.